so this weird thing's been popping up on my TikTok of late, which I didn't know this was a trend, mm-hmm. is that people are buying high schools and turning them into like houses. Oh, have you seen no, this? I've never, well, you there's seen, there's I, actually one. Well, there, there's one in Atlanta that's like an apartment building, like they've turned it into yes. an apartment building. Yeah. In the last week, I have seen two or three people like that are not like, to my knowledge, connected in what way what, whatsoever uh, have bought a high school and are at different levels of like turning it into an apartment complex or just their own house, basically. And it's wild to me that's becoming like a thing like i see like one person doing it but i've seen it like three three two or three times on tiktok in the past week but i've seen it in the past few months a few more times as well wow and i don't know like would you ever live in a school thomas i i don't think so i don't i just don't feel like it's like designed to feel like a home you know it's like no matter what you do inside of it it's still gonna be a school well, and that's what I, yeah. I, I, I've met someone before who lives in the apartment building in Atlanta and, and it, they kind of leaned into it. So like they've they've still got like old lockers in some of the apartments and like the the, oh, the cool. like auditorium is like their their common area. And and so, you know, they, they like, I don't know, maybe I'd prefer that as to just like trying to cover it up. But it feels obvious that you're walking. Yeah. In. I have a lot of one of them like one of the office buildings at uh, Trillith, which is one of the, the big studios in Atlanta used to be in mm-hmm. uh, like an elementary school and they've like turned it into an oh, office building, but it's just so evident when you're walking through it, you know, it's just dumb stuff. Like if you're, if yeah. you're trying to get like a, a delivery there, like if you're trying to have equipment, like we had to have a server delivered there one time for our editing suite and it's got the mm-hmm. like bar between the door you know, it's it's got like two doors with like the swinging doors, yeah. but there's like a metal bar in the middle to like, you, yeah. you know, uh, control traffic or whatever for students coming in and out. And it's and I was just like, yeah. okay, so I guess we're just never getting this equipment inside here. They're like, well, we got to go around to like the loading dock and then roll it like down this hall yeah. and down this hall. Like, oh, okay. See, see, and if it's an older school, see newer schools, they actually have it to where you can take those out, mm. like with a key and just take it out and have it to where it's open fully. Mm. Um, but if it's an older school, it probably don't have yeah. that is the thing. Um, and, and that's across the street, right? Yeah. Is that across the street yeah. from, from Trillith? Okay. Yeah. I remember going by there cause that was, they had like a bunch of just picture cars just like parked in the parking lot and, and not, not working there. Just like picture cars mm-hmm. just lined up. Yeah, There's not a lot of there, parking basically. at Trillith. That's a uh, kind of a problem. <laughs> well, I mean, especially, I mean, I mean, hell it's out in the middle of nowhere, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, I remember when, when Hunter took me to it, you're just riding the backwoods of Georgia and then you just take a turn or, or like you come to this clearing. I don't know how it is the past five years. from. Oh, there's a whole town there now. They built a whole town. Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, well I have to go. Can't wait to go back. Trillith village. Remember, like, oh, wow. Cause Hunter told me that he's like, they're going to be like apartments and stuff like this. Like at that point it was like, there was a home Depot was what it was. That was in the, oh, yeah. It's, the, home, the, the home Depot has gone, but, uh, but yeah, there's a whole Aww. village now. So yeah, there you go. If anybody wants to go tour Atlanta filming <laughs> locations, all your favorite, Marvel films were shot there, so is it, is it Fayetteville? Where, where is it? Or it's like smack Fayette? dab between Fayetteville and Peachtree City, Georgia. Okay, um, but yeah, it's just funny to me. Just with the going back to the school thing, is like how there's just certain things like they can't be used for anything else. That makes sense, mm-hmm. like, but somehow people are turning schools into apartment buildings. <laughs> like, like it's like because I think of like uh, it's weird. Like when you go through L.A., it's like you see the movie theaters that were converted into like medical stores mm-hmm. or like some sort of, or like 
Abercrombie and Fitch is, is I think uh, downtown or like jewelry store. It's like just what these old movie houses are being repurposed in some other way. And schools feel like, you know, we can't, we can't do that. You know <laughs> what? We can, we can. And the, yeah, the person's like, yeah, I, I could tell you, I live on 43 acres of land. I have like basketball courts inside. I got like all these rooms I can use. Um, yeah, one place, one place has actually done a good job of like converting the, the, like the rooms into like legit apartments. Um, and then still having like the, the gym for the, uh, for the, um, workout stuff and everything. And I think they had bought it for like a hundred thousand dollars, which in, in this market is amazing. <laughs> Especially if they're, if they're actually like renting it out to like people for like as apartments and they have just like 60 rooms or whatever. That's, that's, that's wild. Um, but it's funny when you see things that you can tell where something else, like I think about pizza huts Yeah, and, and, and blockbusters. And Any, anytime you walk and in, blockbusters. you walk into a store and it's just like the one door and you have to walk through the entire store to get to the exit. And you're like, Oh yeah, this was a blockbuster. It was a blockbuster. Yeah. But like, uh, with pizza huts, it's just like, it's, I tell people back where I'm from, it's like, or I tell people here where, where I'm from pizza huts are usually Mexican restaurants or bell bonds place. Mm. That's usually it's, it's one of the two. Uh, maybe, maybe another, like, uh, there's like a, there's a wing place I know. Um, but a lot of times I've seen like mostly Mexican restaurants. My favorite was, uh, one time in like North Charleston, there was, I don't know how, how wide there was a chain of buffets that used to be called Quincy's. It was like, it was like a, like a golden corral. Uh, and they went out yeah. of business in like the late nineties, but, um, they put a funeral home in one and I was like, do they? Do they put the caskets on the buffets? <laughs> <laughs> Another one in, in in near Myrtle Beach turned into a strip club, which I, I like to think that they kept the buffets as the stage as well. But who knows? See, see, we had like a uh, it was Ryan's was the big buffet mm-hmm. where we were at. We had, that's that's where like if you played basketball, which I did at YMCA, your end end of year party was at Ryan's buffet is what it was. Um and then also another one uh, was Shoney's. Not really. Mm-hmm. I only was a buffet. Out, I never really sure. But we had a Shoney's motel. Have you ever seen this? No, I've never seen a there's Shoney's a motel. Sho- there was a Shoney's motel um, that was. We had a Shoney's uh, in in Tuscaloosa, and, and basically it was in the in the kind of parking lot area of the motel. Is what it was. Hmm. Um, it's now a shrimp basket. Is what it is. But there there was a sh- and it's yeah Shoney's in. Is what what it was called, mm-hmm. and you can look it up now. Apparently, there, <laughs> there you see you'll see photos of Shoney's hotels. Uh, in a way, like, like Howard Johnson's, in a way, like how, how Howard Johnson's used to be. Huh. Um, but yeah, and now now it's still a motel. It's just now a different motel, and uh, Shoney's restaurant is now a shrimp basket. So there you go. So architecture and 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 uh, food places and high schools. I mean, it's you gotta find a way to repurpose it. You don't want to just tear it down. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, let's get on today's episode. Uh, I am Brand Sparks. Now I'm Thomas Horton. And this is Nation Podcast. And this month we've been talking about social horror, movies that deal with kind of social issues in some way. And again, as we've kind of talked about, uh, is that horror itself as a genre has social elements to, the, to it. Thomas, what did we discuss last week and kind of saying the stage for this genre or this specific kind of look at the horror genre? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've we said 
it's very hard to make a horror movie about nothing. Like we said, a lot yeah. of subconsciously, a lot of themes can come into horror. Uh, a lot of kind of the the fears of the time period that that it's being made in, you can see kind of inserted into horror films that that otherwise you would think were not intended to be kind of social commentary, but we're talking about ones specifically that are aiming to make a statement about uh, something in, in society or, or politics or, or anything like that. We Last week we talked a lot about kind of the Twilight Zone and that being one of the kind of entry points for mm-hmm. this idea that like horror, you know, all of those had, had a lesson. They all had something in, in life that they were addressing. And the Twilight Zone is a huge influence on Jordan Peele, who went on to reboot the Twilight Zone. Uh, after he did get out so um we were talking about the idea you know with with get out and jordan peele that he built it all around this this idea of of um you know being feeling out of place in a white community as a as a person of color mm-hmm. and and the way and kind of building on stepford wives which are which is another kind of social film so we're talking about movies that are setting out to create to use horror to speak to a certain part of society. And I think mm-hmm. horror as a genre is very accessible. It's a very populist genre. And it's one that people it's it's a it's a good way to get your message across. Yeah. Where people otherwise, you know, if, if you made like a drama about something, people would be like, Oh, well, that's no fun. I'm not having any fun, so I'm not gonna like learn a lesson. And it's like, yeah. Oh, well, what if I what if I scare you a little bit? And uh, then maybe you'll be open to to something to learn something. Yeah, and I think too with these the ones we're talking about this month, possibly with these kind of social, like we're we're looking at social issues with it. Is that they feel very much as time capsules of the era in terms of social topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that Get Out? Looking back on a lot of people define define it as like the the first horror film of the Trump like presidency was the yeah thing. yeah but it's also like born of the Obama era like correct you know, correct uh, exactly it's 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 that weird blend of that's that, where you actually see it was a distinct period of of American culture which led to Trump that was like oh we elected Obama this the country we're is good. like past racism now. yes <laughs> we're like, good no. <laughs> yeah and, and and basically Get Out is like kind of in a way as being written and then kind of just how timely it was almost is predicting like, Oh no, no, it's still there. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's these issues don't go away. They, they might evolve and transform. Exactly. Yeah. But they are always still present is the thing. Um, and I think in today's movie we'll talk about too, is I think it's very much of the time that it's, things are happening. And I think, I think still with a lot of these issues with social issues that, most of the time we're always constantly discussing them. So they always can seem relevant in time when we come to them, but they are still a representation of the discussion that's happening in that period is the mm. thing. Um, and we'll talk about that with, with Night of the Living Dead, I think next week as well. Um, but yeah, very much. And I think a lot of these two talking about the Twilight Zone aspect is that like, it's very, how to put it like premise heavy in a way, not as much character heavy, if that makes sense. Like high concept high concept yeah it's like i think nowadays with this it's the with the like kind of a24 horror it mm-hmm. feels more character driven which i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that um and it's and then you have someone like del toro where it's more it can feel more atmospheric in a way um 
still has the premise and still has character, but like trying to describe uh, Jacob's Ladder to someone would be harder mm-hmm. to try and describe today's movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to touch on like Hereditary real quick, like that yeah. was kind of the, the beauty of Hereditary was the advertising campaign kind of made it look like a very high concept. They were like evil grandmother, creepy little girl, demonic possession. There you go. And then you go to watch yeah. it and you're like, oh, no, it's much more like human and complex than, than yeah. they set me up to think it was going to be. Yeah. But today's movie, Thomas, um, because <laughs> I'd never seen it before. And we'll talk about that as we go. Yeah. Um, but you, you picked this from the list. Yeah, so you know, last week I think you and I both agreed that Get Out was a uh, was a near perfect movie. Yeah. So you know, sometimes I like to make us work for it. Sometimes I like to go with something that that's not going to be a home run. But yeah. um, so we're today we're talking about Two Thousand Maniacs with an exclamation point at the end <laughs> uh, from nineteen sixty four. It was written and directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis, who we will talk at length about. But mm. um, he's someone who is referred to as the Godfather of Gore. Uh, it's also shot by Herschel Gordon Lewis as well. Oh. Um, the synopsis is an unsuspecting northern, or unsuspecting northern tourists on their way to Florida are lured into the tiny town of Pleasant Valley, Georgia, while the entire town is waiting to enact their revenge for the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, cast intro. There's not really anyone you would know. Uh, Connie Mason. <laughs> Connie Mason was a former one, yeah. Playboy playmate. Uh, and her husband, William Kerwin, is in it as well. And an actor known as Jeffrey Allen that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but yeah, so this was one I saw a few years back. They had it on Criterion. I'm not really sure why. It, you know, Criterion put some really interesting stuff up, especially in October. Yeah. Um, and and it was one I, I someone else had recommended to me. They were like, it's the first like like splatter film. It's like very interesting to watch because it is. It seems very hokey now with the effects, but if you put yourself in the mindset, like people were freaking out, and yeah. and so I put it on, and it's um it's really it's really interesting. And then uh, last year I bought through Arrow Video, I bought the a bo- they made a box set of all mm-hmm. of Marshall Gordon Lewis's like splatter films, all of his gore films, because yeah. they can't can't do a box set of all of his films because he churned out like three or four a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started watching through those, and he has these little video intros that he recorded for it and he's very endearing he's a very (laughs) sweet old man in these in these videos so i've become like more and more interested in kind of him and his career and so when this one popped up on our list i was like you know what this one will be wild this one will be a wild card for us but um it is streaming it is streaming on uh on tubi tubi yeah Yeah. so so you you guys can check it out um i i I ran the blu-ray from cinephile video in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. So if you're in Los Angeles, you want to rent something, rent it from there. Uh, and then it's a three disc set is what it is too of his mm-hmm. movies. Um, I, I, if you're in Atlanta, I have a good, ch- I have a, a good bet that a video drone in Atlanta probably has it. If, if you're in Atlanta, Atlanta, I've got the box set of every <laughs> one on Blu-ray. So. All right. Here, here's Thomas's address. To <laughs> um, and there's probably, I, I have a feeling black lodge in Memphis. I'm just shouting out all the video stores. I know scarecrow and, uh, they're in Seattle. But yeah, I think there's a good chance if you're talking to like a horror fan, a, a, a deep cut horror fan, they're going to they're gonna know this one. They're going to at least know of it. Yeah. Last thing, David, David, who is a big horror fan, I told him we were doing it. He's never seen it. He goes, Herschel Gordon Lewis, you guys are doing one of those movies? <laughs> I was like, yeah, he goes, he goes, it's worth discussing. He goes, I've never yeah. seen it. 
He's like, I've never seen that one. He goes, but he, he's worth discussing as a, just a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So here we are. You have, you have any, any initial thoughts you want to hit on or are we going to save those for later? Um, no, I'll, I'll say I've never seen this movie and there's something about, because I have a feeling we'll talk about like exploitation, hick exploitation in some mm-hmm. way in this episode and, and kind of these early grindhouse movies. I think you got to put into context, like the, this comes out in 64 Four. is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, and you'll, I won't dive into the historical context because I have a feeling we're, we're going to go deep. No, I, I have no doubt. Um, but in terms of movies, it's like this is the early beginnings of like the drive-in gr- grindhouse mm-hmm. type late night movies is what we're, we're getting. Um, and you can tell it when watching it is the thing. Um, and you're, it reminds me a little bit because we've covered previously on some of these episodes, like when Hunter was on, talked about Legend of Baki Creek, mm-hmm. uh, which is more of a kind of a... A, a family scary movie like it's not really fully scary but then you have like the town that dreaded sundown we talked about at one point mm-hmm. um for our texas month um so movies like that where you can tell it's a really lo-fi like just we live in a town and want to make a movie here yeah let's go do it it's the thing yeah so so yeah so so with that i respect it we'll talk about other stuff <laughs> later i think because we're going to spoilers here, so I'm sorry if you've never watched it. Because to me, there's something in this movie that makes it worthwhile, and that's the like kind of twist to it all is the mm. thing. Where I was okay. like, yeah. "Oh, oh, that's <laughs> interesting." So, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about we'll talk about that a little bit in the uh, into kind of the the inception of it as well. Okay, cool. So to get into this movie, we got, we need to talk about two two hand, two strands of history. There's going to be a twofold history lesson here. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, we really gotta, like you were saying, we really gotta land everybody properly in the context of of this movie and, and when yeah. it came out. So we'll be talking about the history of exploitation cinema, and we're gonna be talking about the depiction of the South in post Civil War media. So mm-hmm. so strap in everybody. If, uh, if <laughs> maybe if you're like a history podcast listener, this one will really appeal this to you. This, this is your yeah. this is your hardcore history episode of Cine Nation. Uh, but let's start off with exploitation cinema and we'll talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis and kind of how he ended up in the middle of all of it. So Herschel Gordon Lewis was born in 1926. He was raised in Chicago. He went to Northwestern, got his bachelor and master's degree in journalism there. Oh, wow. uh, he taught communications at Mississippi State uh, before being recruited to work in radio, where he's where he worked as a radio station manager before returning to Chicago and beginning a career in advertising. Mm-hmm. While he was in advertising, he started directing commercials, most notably a 20-minute promotional film for a meat carving set that's called Carving Magic. That came out in 1959, and it starred William Kerwin, who is someone we will see pop up a lot, Mm -hmm. and uh, Harvey Korman. Wow. Really? Yep. You can find it. It's on YouTube. You can watch. Carving Magic. Was was it one of his first things? Had to be. He's young. I, I, I watched it. He, he's really young. It, it. It's his first thing. 1959. Yeah. Yeah. He, he doesn't act in a movie. He does an exploitation film. Um, After that called Living Venus. Also by Herschel Gordon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that. We'll talk about that one. And then he does Gypsy. He's in Gypsy. Uh, Natalie Wood's Gypsy in 62. Mm. 
So after getting a taste for directing, Lewis began to focus on making feature films with the idea that he could use his skills in advertising to identify opportunities to turn a quick profit in theaters with very little investment. Yeah. Uh, so the late 50s mark a huge turning point in filmmaking because of the rise of the exploitation film. Mm-hmm. At this time period, making the, the creation of pornography was illegal. And between that and the restrictions of the Hayes Code, nudity in film had been non-existent for decades. Mm-hmm. So in the 50s, filmmakers looking to make a quick buck identified a legal lo- loophole in the pornography law by, f- by figuring that if nudity wasn't explicitly sexual, it would be permissible. So the quote unquote Mm -hmm. nudie film was born in that period with kind of two approaches that you could do to get away with this. You could make an educational film, which was a movie that was purporting to be for sexual education, but was often just using the excuse to kind of have nudity on on screen. Uh, The most infamous of these is actually dates all the way back to 1945 with a movie called Mom and Dad that is kind of very infamous uh, for having like way too much sexual content but it's like yeah it's for sex sex education interesting uh the other loophole was making nudist movies with the thinking that if everyone was nude all the time then it couldn't possibly be for sexual reasons you know it's just their like lifestyle uh the most famous just churning butter in the nude no big deal the most famous example of this is probably the notorious 1961 sci-fi nude on the moon which criterion had uh maybe last year um mm-hmm. yeah it's just about a, it's about a nudist colony that lives on the moon currently streaming on plex on plex service uh so lewis would join forces with exploitation producer david f freeman to start churning out exploitation films in the early 60s including a quote-unquote educational film about the founding of playboy called living venus also yep. with harvey corman harvey corman and right. uh, did not expect pl- that on this episode <laughs> plenty of nudist movies including the adventures of lucky pierre about a young man who is going through his day and just keeps encountering different groups of of nudist women uh, and a, a movie called Daughter of the Sun about a nudist camp and a movie called Goldilocks and the Three Bears, B-A-R-E-S, of course, which was billed yeah. as the first nudist musical. <laughs> so predates hair, predates hair. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, many of these movies were cranked out at less than $10,000 a pop. Uh, they would share locations. They'd shoot multiple movies across locations and with resources, cast members. And then you could sell them at a handsome profit to these adult theaters that had started popping up specifically to screen these types of movies. This is all still before pornography is legal. Yeah. Uh, so Lewis and Freeman are uh, being, you know, they're very successful. But by 1963, the novelty of nudies is beginning to die off. You're starting to find people finding even more loopholes to promote even kind of more sexual films and you're also in the 60s you're seeing the Hayes code kind of wane we've talked about Mm -hmm. plenty of movies from like the mid 60s that are starting to get way more sexual than we had previously seen yeah uh so profits are starting to fall a little bit from these nudies and lewis and friedman start looking to other genres to kind of bring the people in and to make the money what they really wanted to do was tap into a market that they weren't able to exploit with their nudies, which was drive-in movie theaters, which were really starting to become the the craze at the early 60s. And they yeah. were also starting to get more leeway with what they could show 
for their B movies. The yeah. movies that were shown late at night after most of the kids had left were generally genre flicks, action adventure, noir, yeah. crime, horror. So Lewis said, I've never made a horror movie before, but he had seen one in 1960 that really stuck with him. He said that he loved Psycho when he saw it, but he felt cheated at the way that it hinted at blood and guts without ever showing them. Okay. He said, I want to make Psycho, but I want to show you everything. And I feel like audiences feel the same way. Okay. I mean, you're in a period again, and I don't want to jump ahead in any way, but in 64 or early 60s, you're seeing the the people pushing the boundaries of what you can do in film because the code is kind of falling. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's kind of a wild, wild West from like the early sixties to, to really the mid to late sixties when mm-hmm. new Hollywood comes in and you have the, like the graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and all those movies. Um, but uh, people are really pushing the boundaries in both mainstream films in terms of what you discuss. If it's like splinter in the grass of like mm-hmm. sexual, sexual repression and, and the thought of sex, um, uh, anatomy and murder. We talked about, uh, at one point uh, a few months or last year, I guess on courtroom mm-hmm. dramas. So like you're seeing more and more of that and that's on a large scale. So with a smaller scale, you can get away with even more because they're aware that not a lot of eyes are actually on it. And com- cause there's no big stars. Yeah. Um, when you're also as an independent film, cause the Hayes code was, was self-enforced by the studios. So as an independent yeah. film, you can kind of skirt around a lot of and, that. And, and if you're basically just playing the drive-in circuit, the only ones you have to worry about are the drive-in, theaters mm-hmm. like and they'll play whatever they want to because it's coming through you basically um yeah. so yeah interesting yeah so they so lewis and friedman set out to make their version of psycho with as much blood and guts as they wanted uh and that became blood feast from 1963 which was a movie mm-hmm. about a caterer who sacrifices victims to an ancient egyptian deity while serving their body parts to his clients sounds, sounds like sweeney todd <laughs> Uh, Blood Feast would be their most expensive film to date, costing $24,000 to produce. Yeah. Uh, but they would hedge their bets by shooting uh, another movie on the same sets, uh, Scum of the Earth, which I, I also watched this week to prep for this. Uh, it's a nudie film that would also launch a new genre called a roughie, which be, eventually became a grindhouse staple, which is basically like softcore porn film noir. Huh. So basically an early erotic thriller is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 In a way, because basically erotic thrillers are basically noir with set with like with, with sex being more overt and out in the open. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So this this one's about a girl who gets a model who gets like blackmailed into like make posing for porn and she's like trying to get out. But there's this like group of evil pornographers that won't let her leave. Um, Jesus so with some marketing wizardry by freeman and lewis including passing out barf bags at drive-ins and purposefully filing injunctions against the movie in select cities so that they could claim that oh it's being censored uh that's that's, that's ingenious by the way <laughs> a movie they don't want you to see drive yeah, to the next town over because your town again, won't let us have it again that's just stuff you have to i think it was a, it was either legend by career town dread sundown where like they had people just going into the theater and coming out of the theater, like mm-hmm. and putting on different clothes to me. Like it was always a long line mm. going into the theater was what it was. 
to get people like, oh, wow, it's really busy. We got to go see that movie. When it's just like 10 people have bought a ticket and just keep going <laughs> in and out over and over again. Uh, wow, that's ingenious. Well, it worked. And yeah. Blood Feast made $4 million on their $24,000 budget. Whew. That's that's 1963 money, too. I don't even know what. Uh, $40 million. Wow. So that would be. That's not bad. On, on, on a budget of what would be nowadays, basically $250,000. No. All right. So, yeah, obviously they'd found a new a new place to make money and uh they had also launched a new genre which would come to be known as the splatter film. Blood Feast is widely recognized as the first ever splatter film. So, after the success of Blood Feast, Lewis told Freeman he said, "You know what? We made so much money on this one. I wasn't even trying." Uh <laughs> so he said, "Let me make another one, uh but let me he's let me do it good this time. Let me make Blood Feast, but let me make it good." Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll take a pause with Herschel Gordon Lewis pondering what his next and, movie and, should be about. And before, did you define splatter genre for people? So it's it's gore. It's 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 yeah. murder with with gore and blood and and you know kind of with that as kind of the main focus of the of the yeah. scares. Is is how bloody and graphic can we get? Yeah, is the thing. Yeah, Saw X now in theaters. Um. So we're going to leave him pondering what his next movie should be about. And we're going to rewind all the way back to 1866. Let's go back. Now we're hitting our other, our other, other historical other, thread. Other, other, other timeline here. So in 1866, at the end of the American Civil War, uh, Virginia journalist Edward A. Pollard published a book called The Lost Cause, A New yeah. Southern History of the War of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Within this book, Pollard laid out a number of ideas that would come to be known as the Lost Cause Fallacy. Uh, so through Pollard's book and many that followed in the next 30 to 40 years, including one published by former Confederate President Jefferson Davis, a narrative was created around the Civil War that tried to lend an air of nobility to the defeated South. Yeah. By the 1900s, the lost cause fallacy had become a widely accepted belief that was taught openly throughout the South and was rampant in Southern literature. The main tenets of uh, the lost cause fallacy include that the purpose of the war was states' rights instead of defending the practice of slavery that slaves in the South were given good lives, that Confederate leaders like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were considered honorable and brilliant even by their enemies, and that the Union Army was significantly more brutal in their methods than the Confederates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yale history professor Roland Osterweiss posits that the lost cause grew out of the need of the now impoverished white South to romanticize the quote-unquote good times. Mm -hmm. He says the legend of the lost cause began as mostly a literary expression of the despair of a bitter defeated people over a lost identity. It was a landscape dotted with figures drawn mainly out of the past. The chivalric planter, the magnolia scented Southern belle, the good gray Confederate veteran, once a knight of the field and saddle and the obliging old uncle Remus. All these while quickly enveloped in a golden haze became very real to the people of the South who found the symbols useful in the reconstituting of their shattered civilization. They perpetuated the ideals of the old South, and it brought a sense of comfort to the new South. The most interesting aspect of the lost cause fallacy is that it was embraced by the North. Uh, Many historians have noted that embracing the lost cause seemed to encourage Southerners to be more open to reunification. If you were just Mm kind of like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's how it was. Uh, and so the northern media just kind of went along with the story, despite knowing, at least at first, that it was not the truth. Yeah. By 
1900, after nearly 40 years of embracing the Lost Cause fallacy, the country was reunified and the Lost Cause legends had just become accepted truth. Historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall says, Neither the trauma of slavery for African Americans nor their heroic, heartbreaking freedom struggle found a place in that story. But the Lost Cause narrative also suppressed the memories of many white Southerners. Memories of how under slavery, power bred cruelty. Memories of the bloody, unbearable realities of war. Written out, too, were the competing memories and identities that set white Southerners against one another, pitting the planters against the upcountry, unionists against Confederates, populists and mill workers against the corporations, home front women against besotted, broken men. It was in the early 1900s, after a full generation had been raised on the Lost Cause fallacy while being removed from the realities of the Civil War, that the symbolism of the Lost Cause became fully accepted. And then, in 1915, something very important happened that would carry the tenets of the Lost Cause nationwide. Birth of a Nation was, re- was released? Yeah. D.W. Griffith made his Ku Klux Klan epic Birth of a Nation. Uh, for anyone not familiar with Birth of a Nation, it is a very significant film in a filmmaking sense. It's kind of yeah. credited for, for creating modern narrative film. Yeah. Uh, but it is glorifying the Ku Klux Klan and saving the Reconstruction era South. The, the hero of the movie is literally a member of the Ku Klux Klan and they're, they are white knights protecting the South. Yeah. Um, and, and it would well, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 go for I it. Know, well, I know, I know like it's part of the thing. It's like, it's like, it was, uh, was it McKinley? Who was the president at that time? Wilson. Wilson. Okay. So Woodrow Wilson shows it in like, it's, Shown it's the first film shown at the White House, I think is what it is. Woodrow Wilson screened it at the White House and then arranged a screening the next day for the Supreme Court and Congress to see it. Yeah. Um, so it became, and it's, I've never actually seen Birth of a Nation, but in terms of D.W. Griffith, it's like he is one of the first true filmmakers in, in cinema and, and kind mm-hmm. of in terms of the creation of uh, everyone kind of gives him credit for like creating the close up and, and kind of and the idea of like how to juxtapose coverage images coverage yeah yeah um how to edit he's these long massive epics um uh birth of nation one uh uh intolerance being another one uh intolerance i think being a big influence really becoming more of an influence on certain things in terms of like design like that mm-hmm. was a big thing uh, if you remember like the, uh in hollywood and vine or hollywood highland um like that whole basically mm-hmm. was designed that after, yeah was designed for intolerance i think they've gotten rid of most of that now because of the backlash of Griffith and Birth of a Nation and thinking those were kind of connected. Um, but yeah, he, he was one of the early filmmakers into, like up there with Chaplin in terms of the kind of the early, ver- early kind of people who were making films that became seen as not just quick, like put out in Nickelodeons or whatever to make a little mm-hmm. bit of money, but were like creating art is what it was. And that's why Birth of a Nation being so big it was so it was kind of uh propping up this idea yeah it was it was full-on lost cause propaganda and it it, it was being seen as a smash hit it was not it was not seen being as like something just to make money it was being seen as art is the thing Mm -hmm. uh yeah it was the highest grossing film in the country um everyone saw it and so when we say like you know they always say like the victors write the history books but for some yeah. reason the civil war became one where the losers wrote the history book yeah. um everyone in the country saw this movie at least once multiple yeah. times yeah. um 
It made so much money that it would stay the highest grossing film in the country for almost 25 years until it was finally dethroned by what, Brandon? Um, well, 25 years, if I'm not almost, mistaken. Almost 25 if, years. If I'm saying it was Snow White first, then it was Gone with the Wind. Yes, yes. Yeah. Gone with the, uh, Gone with the Wind, yeah. So, Gone with the Wind becomes the highest grossing movie. Yeah. Guess what it's about? The Lost Cause Fallacy. Lost. <laughs> How wonderful and romantic the South was before yeah. the Civil War came and, and ruined everything. Yeah. And here, here's I love Gone with the Wind. I think Gone with the Wind, again, is like a a, a massive achievement in filmmaking, I think, because I've heard Spike Lee talk about this with, with Gone with the Wind and Birth of the Nation. They should never not be shown, but they should be yeah. discussed of the context of what it is, of like why why it's great and why it's bad. Yeah. Is the thing because I mean the first the, the first time the only time I've ever seen Birth of a Nation was on Turner Classic Movies and they yeah. had somebody on talking about it beforehand. You you need context now, but yeah, yeah, it's you know it's history. It's it's worth but, seeing. But I mean, I saw it at the Arrow one time, and our my, our friend Nathaniel was with me. He never seen it before, and I remember there's the the, the text uh, uh, scroll at the or the the text crawl at the beginning. And it kind of says the same. it's like when 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 master and slave worked hand in hand. And I hear mm. him go, ooh, he goes, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh, I don't know about that. Um, but yeah. Uh Gone, Gone with the Wind obviously was huge. Uh yeah. it is many lists, if you find it still say adjusted for inflation, it still argue that it's the highest grossing movie ever made. Yeah, I think over three billion dollars worldwide if you if you adjust for inflation. Is what I'm, it was a number I heard at one point or yeah. three billion tickets. One of the, I think probably three billion dollars. Yeah. Still the most tickets sold, I think, ever by any movie. If they if they add that into the mix. So. So, yeah, everybody, everybody was eating this up. Yeah. Uh, Southern films, especially Lost Cause skewed Southern romanticized Southern films were not only popular, they were cash cows. And so Hollywood starts churning out more and more films about Southern gentility. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, outside of pop culture, tenets of the lost cause fallacy were becoming weaponized by enemies of the civil rights movement, uh, leaning on stories of states' rights and quote-unquote heritage, not hate. Uh, Southern government buildings that had never before displayed images of the Civil War were now flying Mm -hmm. Confederate flags. They were erecting Confederate uh, memorials. And these are all, they're like, oh, no, it's it's just the Civil War, but it's happening during the civil rights movement like it's obviously a response yeah. to it's uh, it's, ba- it's basically happening going with the, the idea of like the civil war stuff uh, monuments are are going up around the time of social civil unrest and that could yeah. be in the 1910s and the 20s and in the 1950s and the 60s yeah. when and and also if you look at that it's also around the time of the rise of the kkk in some way mm-hmm. is that that's the thing about birth of nation is that birth of nation um essentially gave a life to the KKK again after it had been dormant for I think several decades. Yeah, um, was the thing, and it kind of been prom- squashed during the Reconstruction era, and, yeah. and then it yeah came back, got popular yeah. again, and, and ebbs and flows. And when there's and and the monuments that are created were were and not as remembrance, but as you said, and in front of states buildings and kind of more public places as a reminder, in some way. For, for people it's mm-hmm. while some people will take a different meaning behind it nowadays and, and, and throughout the years you might have a different meaning but the purpose in that moment was not the meaning we're putting onto it people are putting yeah. onto it now as a thing that yeah. was that's what we added later on it was usually put in place 
as a way to suppress people who were trying to gain rights in that in that moment yeah um so meanwhile back in hollywood uh the kind of purpose of the use of southern films had begun to evolve while the Hayes Code had put strict dampers on sexual content in film, the sexual repression of the conservative South provided mm-hmm. an excellent setting to explore sexual subtext. Mm-hmm. Uh, led by adaptations of Southern Gothic authors like William Faulkner and Tennessee Williams, the Southern film genre became almost completely focused on sex, uh, perhaps most successfully with 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, mm-hmm. which is all about sex we covered cat on a hot tin roof yeah. on here before that is all about sex yeah. and sexuality <laughs> um yeah so and on the heels re- yeah. re- reflections in the golden eye with also with brando mm-hmm. and elizabeth taylor uh, uh that's uh carson i think carson mccullers is what it is uh that's all about repression and sexuality and all that um yeah also a really good movie so on the heels of the success of these kind of sexual Southern films, uh, as you see with any kind of genre blowing up, you start getting kind of cheaper, yep. you know, not, not everything can be streetcar named desire. Mm-hmm. So the smaller studios start churning, churning out these kind of Southern sex films and they become an exploitation genre of their own. Um, and so it was probably kind of this profitability that is on Herschel Gordon Lewis's mind when he decides to set his follow-up to blood feast in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had also, he had a lot of experience. He had spent plenty of time in the South while he was teaching college. And while he was making his earlier films, uh, blood feast and scum, scum of the earth had both been shot in Florida. Mm-hmm. So Lewis recognized through experience that Southern gen- gentility, gentility, mm-hmm. genteel. I don't know how the, 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 how you pronounce the the <laughs> expounded version of that yeah. uh but that southern hospitality wasn't always as it was depicted in the film and he got yeah. the idea to make a horror film where the dark side of southern hospitality was exposed he envisioned the film as the american horror version of brigadoon which is the second month in yeah. a row that yeah, we're yeah. talking about brigadoon. <laughs> a okay movie <laughs> <laughs> Very influential. Uh, But as we said last month, uh, Brigadoon is about unsuspecting visitors trapped in a magical small town that kind of holds them there Mm -hmm. uh, until its purposes are fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in this version, instead of kind of learning about themselves, as we talked about last month in small town movies, uh, they would learn the ugly truth about the rural South. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lewis intended to tell a better story with 2000 Maniacs than he did with Blood Feast, promising Friedman that this one would have a beginning, middle, and end, which he didn't think he had completely delivered on in Blood Feast. <laughs> Given the immense profit of Blood Feast, Friedman approved, and he set the budget at $65,000, Lewis's biggest movie yet. Wow. Lewis and Friedman landed on St. Cloud, a small town outside of Orlando, Florida, and gained the blessing of the town uh, to shoot there when they offered for anyone any resident of the town to be in it like hey we want to shoot here if anybody wants to be in it they can come out they can be in it and they said okay Mm -hmm. outside of the locals that he cast lewis recruited his regular collaborator william Kerwin, who he'd been working with ever since his uh infomercial days and Kerwin's wife uh playboy playmate connie mason who had made her acting debut in blood feast lewis also cast chicago stage actor taukius blank taukius blank as the villainous town mayor 
though Blank chose the pseudonym Jeffrey Allen so he wouldn't have to join the Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, that's a, that's, uh, a wild, that's a wild name to have. Talkius. He went by Talkie, apparently. Talkie. Hey, Talkie. Uh, so let's uh let's get into some favorite scenes, Brandon. Okay. I mean, here's the thing. With this one, it's really just the kills are going to be the top thing at the at like mm. the, at, of this movie, mm-hmm. um, because they are fairly inventive for the time, while also having a sense of like cultural idea to it but if that makes sense it's mm. like it's like, again it's like it's a fair it's like so it's like it's like a southern fair <laughs> well, I, I have to go ahead at the, at the top and say one of my favorite things about this movie is how they keep pressuring these people and so so these people arrive and they say you're at the, welcome yeah. you're at the centennial of this town the centennial yeah. celebration of the town and anytime the people the victims are like I don't know I don't want to do that they're like oh well you got to it's a centennial tradition like it can't be a tradition this is the first one <laughs> I know I was like this doesn't happen every year it's like it's we have to I mean in reality it's the first time they've actually done it is the thing <laughs> that's the wild part you think it'd be like every 10 years you know what I mean like oh it's the 60th anniversary the 50th anniversary this is the first time these guys are doing this mm-hmm. um but yeah, it's they 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 somehow a lot of times like create the kills around not all the time fully, but I think in the middle part of it, the the kills will will connect with some sort of celebration of some kind, some part of celebration. If it be like the horse pull, mm. is the big one. we're gonna do a horse pull, and they tie him to, uh, on the guy's limbs basically and pull him apart. Um, or if it's the uh, the the dunk tank one or whatever, like, oh mm-hmm. we're gonna we're trying to hit the water on it, but it's a massive boulder that's gonna fall on her. Um, yeah, I, I think this movie is not again not made to give in depth character or have character development. Uh, master character, it's it's there for the kills. Um, I think it's a really fun setting. Mm-hmm. Um, is the thing. Um, and there is a a a roughness that is almost charming if that makes sense like the look <laughs> of it all yeah um cuz that's with these movies that, while i never always loved these movies these kind of exploitation movies of these era there is always something to in our modern era, era that there it because this roughness adds some sort of authenticity to it maybe in a way like some some realness is the thing and that's somewhat like yeah and this is i mean this is still this is the second splatter film ever made so there's yeah. no formula here they're, yeah. they're they're feeling it out on, on as they go we're gonna set these characters and have them all start going off one by one and everything's like you can tell like if they're inside it's just so much light like they can tell just they just put like one light in the corner that just shines mm-hmm. on them basically um and it's just it's somewhat funny to me is the thing you can tell it's like it's people who they just have friends of they need to be in this movie um or they've just like again talking about like like the mentioning kind of pornos and stuff this period uh coming up it's like it reminds me a little bit of like boogie nights when they're like shooting this stuff on sound stages Mm -hmm. where it's just like one camera just light shining in they're just like quick close-ups this is what like it feels like this was shot like Mm-hmm. when you watch it is the thing oh, yeah i mean that's that's what these people were making up until now they yeah. you know they're they're making 
softcore porn and then they were like, huh, oh, let's let's try this. This might be yeah. kind of interesting. It's kind of fun. But what what's what I mean, what's the scene that you like? Because I'm just kind of like I love the kills. I love kind of I do like kind of the idea of like with the main guy is with with tear with the uh with Tom because he's the one who like basically knows like yo this is something he's the he's the uh um the hitchhiker basically right mm-hmm. yeah that's 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 William or Kerwin Tom. yeah Tom yeah Tom so like it, so yeah he he's kind of like the entire time he's like I think something's up here yeah like the entire time he's like I think something is up here. And everyone else is kind of like oblivious to it all is the thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, you know, we, we, we obviously we don't have slashers yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is really kind of not just like splatter films, but like this is really the early beginnings of just kind of horror films in general outside of like the William Castle, like mm-hmm. the gothic kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, the the it it feel the way they've got like the four tourists that ro- that roll up that are like kind of dumb and kind of going along with it, and then you yeah. get that your two heroes roll up afterwards, and they're they're a little bit more suspicious, and they're a little bit smarter, and they're they're going to be the ones to make it out. Um, and 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 it does feel you know it kind of feels formulaic, but the interesting thing is it's we're we're familiar with the formula because it came after this movie because yeah. uh, it was like inspired by this movie. So, you know, you have the four like dumb people that we don't really care about that. We're going to be like fine to watch, get picked off one by one. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of, you know, they kind of have their vices as well, which is kind of mm-hmm. something that became part of like a slasher film is like the, yeah. the, the first people to go can be like the ones that are, that are mean or that are, yeah. <laughs> promiscuous as yeah, we would see in a lot of films yeah and that's well, what's going to happen here is this like couple that's just like openly okay with with cheating on it like flaunting in front of each other their infidelity um yeah, which brings she, us to yeah she's uh, the first kill she's the first kill oh, go yes ahead, go which bring i was gonna say which brings me to the first kind of splatter sequence which yeah yeah i think is is really well done yeah i think it's just really well edited for yeah, you know it's it's this guy's got the, you know, it's from a script standpoint. She's like, look at my knife. Look how sharp it is. And then he just like hacks this girl's thumb off. And, yeah. um, you know, you get a, a shot of like the thumb hitting the grass and the blood spattering and her hand covered in blood. And then they, they take her to the, the doctor's office and they're like, oh, we're going to, oh no, it looks bad. We're going to have to amputate yeah. and chop her arm off. And that you know you see that the, the axe go in i'm sure they've yeah. they've rigged up something like a like a, a magician's table where they've got a fake arm and they bring that axe down like into the arm yeah um so yeah it's 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 really impressive and i can imagine yeah. if you'd never seen anything like this in 64 you come out of this movie and you're like they need to find this guy and lock him up like <laughs> You know, if you're not familiar with anybody kind of depicting this on screen, you're like, this yeah. guy's going to how long before this guy goes out and does it in real life? Real you know? life yeah, because like when, when she's holding it, because they, they like holding up the arm like, oh, look at this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be uh, oh, I love. I mean, you know, it's the, these none of them are exactly subtle in the, the way they're like. They're like, well, you know, I I, I just want to be back before the barbecue, and they're like, ain't no, ain't not gonna be no barbecue if you ain't there. Like, you're <laughs> just like, oh, they're obviously going to cook her for the barbecue. Yeah, because that's a big thing that they do with one of the other ones, right? It's the it's the like, uh, is their arms what it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that first girl, they chop off her arm and and cook it up at the at the barbecue. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm, just, I'm, I'm skimming through some stuff with this. Um, I do like 
not kill, but actually when 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 Thomas when Tom uh is like trying to get in touch with his, I guess his brother in Atlanta or someone mm-hmm. in Atlanta is what it is. And yeah, yeah, like, the conference he's heading to. Yeah. And he's like trying to get on the phone and he's like, I'll put on a southern accent to make him think I'm not one of the, the tour no one tour tourist tourist. And uh and then it cuts to like um uh Talcius or whatever's uh, Mayor Buckman. And mm-hmm. he's like, Oh yeah, I'll send your message. Send it as far as it can go. And it just puts it like in a, as a paper it makes airplane. it a paper airplane, then sets, sets it on, on fire, fire, then stomps <laughs> it. Out. Oh yeah, um, just just and just completely batshit insane, like his character. I love the um, two the two guys that are like the organizers of the thing of the. Well, they're the ones who are like doing the detour stuff at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Rufus and Lester, I believe, are their names. <laughs> Gosh, because I I like that point with the beginning when they're like, when they're when they they take down the Augusta Georgia sign and put up detour this way, mm-hmm. um, it's fun. Um, and then you get kind of the big sequence I like is when it's the when they're at the like barbecue, mm-hmm. and you have all this stuff like when they're when they're singing uh the like uh, look away or mm-hmm. whatever the the Dixie song or whatever. Like it's kind of chilling. It's like they've just killed two three people and now yeah. it's like celebration yeah and we're sitting here like as we're as they're basking in the glory yeah and there of kind of all. is a minute after they, they pull that guy apart in the horse pull where you can see like the townsfolk are kind of like i don't know about this and then the the two kind of like leaders are like let's go start playing some music i want everybody yeah. clapping i do um yeah. i do love that this film captures uh uh specifically like <laughs> Uh, older white people's inability to clap on beat. <laughs> I'm watching it right now, and they're really off. They're, I, I don't have to, I don't have to listen to it. I can just tell they're so off. Oh, yeah, pe- multiple people on screen are, are off from each other. Um, well, you got the slow guys doing, and one person doing, like actually like clapping. <laughs> um, but I do I, I do think having that whole town really add something to this movie like the having all the townsfolk in on it having access to the whole town yeah uh makes the movie feel bigger makes it feel more like a movie you know they're not stuck yeah. in these little rooms like you see with a lot of the kind of independent horror that would come up in the late 70s that's true um it, they've got the, the the when they first drive into town you've got all these people running up they're all waving their confederate flags um and and it is this like immediate and, and and the way it shows they're all waiting for him to drive up and then they come in and everybody goes nuts and you're immediately like on edge you're like this yeah. is this is bad this is wrong i don't know exactly yeah. what's going on here but something's bad yeah that's that's a good comment on, on the amount of people they use to make it feel bigger it's like I'm, I'm looking at a shot right now and it's 19 people in one shot mm-hmm. and today that would be how much money <laughs> right you know what i mean like yeah um just for one day at that this shot of and 90 people getting paid basically minimum of a, of a sag agreement and mm-hmm. yeah that 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 might be the entire budget of this film in <laughs> in one day it's think if it was in modern day times mm-hmm. um but yeah and so but yeah i like that whole that sequence and i like again the barrel roll is insane to me yeah they do act, like that that to me might be the my my favorite kill in this movie just that's that's how this movie was pitched to me by someone who hadn't seen it in a very long time and and he was like 
all I remember is they put this guy in a barrel full of nails and roll it down the hill. And I was like, all right, yeah. I'm in, I'm in, let's do it. Yeah. It's just, it's such a wild idea to do for, and that's the one. Cause that's the like one guy who's like, not like, he's like, I'm, I'm out. Uh, I don't want yeah. in on any of this stuff. And that's the time when they keep being like, well, you gotta, it's a centennial it's a tradition. tradition. <laughs> Either Rufus or Lester's telling him that is the thing. <laughs> Um, and then again, it's like how all of them, like those, like the Rufus and Lester and, and the mayor character, it's like after every kill, it's just like a celebration. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. we got them. And again, to talk about the blood of all this, it's like, I think where you kind of get the splatter idea from is like, it's so red is the thing. <laughs> like yeah. the blood is so red that it, it's all like, it's, it's not maroon. It's Technicolor it's not, blood. We're not used to seeing blood in Technicolor. That's, you don't get that yeah, much. It's very odd. So it's just very bright is the thing. Uh, and there's so much of it. So it's just like that, like just covered in it, basically. Um, but that's, you know, when we're talking about that, like, centennial tradition thing, where what's really at the heart of this movie and what Lewis is kind of hit the, the central thesis of all of this is that idea of, like, Southern hospitality. And, and, and it has been perpetuated as like oh it's so sincere like say what you will about the south but everybody there is is so kind and friendly and welcome and and that's you know that's the fatal mistake in all of this was these people should have just kept driving you know they they yeah they didn't need to spend you know it's not like the car broke down or they were literally just driving through and these people were like hey come and stay two days we're gonna have this big party we insist and they're like, okay, all right, yeah, you guys seem seem nice. You're a little weird, but you seem sure. nice. And from everything I've ever seen in movies, like small southern towns are nothing but friendly. So let's go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. I had someone kind of contact me recently, uh, uh, that worked on our our thesis film, Thomas, mm. uh, our AD. Mm-hmm. Um, she was like, oh no, I I love the South. It's just it's so interesting, like. Cause there's so many like just secrets no one talks about. And she's like, <laughs> and she's like why is that? I go, I go repression. It's, it's, and, and, but I was just like, um, I was, there is something about where it's like, it's the idea of like that hospitality. I think there is, there is truth to it, but it's also a thing that can be used as facade is the mm. whole thing. And I guess that what you're talking about with this movie, that's what it's kind of doing is that it is a facade at the end of the day. Uh, mm. In this movie, at least, where yeah. they, they all they all have other motives, ulterior motives. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's literally this this movie is like all the all the that kind of go to slogan of anytime somebody's like, well, don't get offended by my Confederate flag. It's heritage, not hate. Yeah, and this movie is like, nope, it's hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And so that's again, I said earlier again with the, with with monuments or whatever or statues is that is that people put their own like they put their own view on it now, but in the moment when something is being created and done, it's a different meaning is the thing mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to say it's one thing or, or not. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, so it, it's just, it's just, yeah, this means because it's in the time is that you're seeing things like Ruby bridges or, um, the stuff in Alabama with, uh, like uh Vivian Malone and uh and James Hood uh where it's like people are taking Confederate flags as like a it's not a sign of heritage when they're showing it 
mm-hmm. is the thing at these at these at these protests or whatever they want to call it back then in the late early 60s. Um, it, it's it's a sign of we don't want you here is the thing mm-hmm. um, or it is a sign of hate and people have put some other meaning to it in the past few decades. Um, but here it's like it's it's again, this is actually a great example of her- heritage, not hate is that it's trying to disguise itself as it's like mm-hmm. here. It's trying to disguise it as heritage is the thing. Um, but we, we come to find out that they're, we like said it's, it's hate at the end of the day. Yeah. It's a bunch of literal red flags waving around. Yeah. <laughs> don't, Show, don't stop so, in this town. <laughs> yeah. Sh- showing you like, Hey, let's, we're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to kill you all to, to remembrance of us losing yeah. is the thing. Well, I think, I think, well, as the plaque says, the plaque says that union soldiers came in. I guess they're trying to make it a little bit better. Is it? It's like renegades, or or that's also part of the lost cause aspect. I would mm-hmm. say is that they're the union union soldiers are portrayed as the terrible individuals. They came in and massacred the town yeah. uh, toward the end of the war, um, when it, it probably was just a battle is the thing. Mm-hmm. And also too, it's like with war, it's this the the, the atrocities of war is that uh, as I think I saw I heard someone put it. It's like. Once you've done something terrible in war, you can kind of just keep going because what's the point? You've already gone so far. Mm-hmm. You can kind of keep going is the thing. Well, here's here's my question about that. Um, mm-hmm. So when they go to talk to the sheriff at the end, so, so we've, we've got your kind of Brigadoon moment, which I, I assume is what you're... Yeah you were talking about kind of the the final twist of the movie is yes they they get out of the town they escape from the town and they go to the sheriff the next town over and he says i don't know anything about i've never heard of that town and they take him there and he says and the, and it's just a field and he says oh yeah i kind of remember this legend that like something like this happened to this town yeah and but you know he it's not it's obviously not like a huge event that like everyone knows about like oh everyone got slaughtered in that town or whatever and yeah. the plaque we we kind of we see this plaque memorializing the the you know the renegade union soldiers slaughtering this town the plaque goes away the plaque yeah. dissolves so i feel like there is this question of like is this real history or is this how these these ghosts kind of remember this to to yeah. kind of fuel their fuel their hatred um because it, it it's it's never presented to us as fact that, that no. the the plaque kind of disappears as well so i don't know um i mean again i think what makes the movie interesting and why that that why that part ma- makes it even more interesting to me it is that i think that's kind of a sta- more of a statement on what's happening in that moment in 64 mm. is the thing of this idea of like it's characters who are living in the past and trying to relive it, but a, like a different version of it. If that it's, 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 it's living out a fantasy is, yeah. is the thing. Yeah. And, the, and are, and are doomed. Like they are completely consumed by this, this hatred from a hundred years ago. Yeah. And they're, and they're talking about, well, I guess we're, what do you think the next centennial is going to be like? Well, maybe there'll be spaceships there. And it's like, and, and there's, they're still going to do the same thing. They're never going to move on yeah. from, from the civil war. They're, they're just going to yeah. be like stuck in it. It's, it's arrested development. Yeah. And I, and I do find that fascinating that this is all packed in within a splatter film. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I do want to bring it before we, if we move on to favorite scenes, possibly my favorite performance, the entire movie. <laughs> I think I know who you're going to say. 
It's the kid. The kid the, <laughs> oh, man, the, I never get any candy. The kid, the kid is amazing. What do you Yankees want? Like, he, he's just like, yeah, oh, I don't want any candy. I never get it. I never get any candy. Yeah, he oh, promised shucks. me I could drive the car. He's just so great. He's so great. And I just love when they pick him up, pick him up and throw him out, and he's just stomping his feet. <laughs> just so upset. When, they, when they're trying to yell, I'm like, hey, we got to go. He's like, I'm going to go see what's going on outside. Like he, it's just, it's, it's great. It's he, 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 the kid's great. I want, mm-hmm. I want, I want to know what that guy's doing. If he's still alive, because <laughs> he's amazing. Uh, Let me see. Was that Vincent Santo as Billy? Is that his name? Vince? Uh, that's a wild name for that kid. I gotta be real. That does not <laughs> seem like a redneck name. His only two credits are 2000 maniacs and a documentary about Herschel Gordon Lewis from 2010. So we'll get into onset life. We got a little bit. Uh, how how long what was the shoot schedule on this one, Brandon? What do you think? Well, I I I accidentally when I was looking at the cast on Wikipedia, I saw it. So it's fifteen uh, days. Fifteen day shoot. Yep, spring of nineteen sixty four. Honestly, surprised it took that long. <laughs> they got to set up that boulder. Yeah, you know, they got to get that boulder up on top. I of mean, that. I think if you don't have the kills like they do, it probably is like a ten day shoot. Yeah, that's true. The kills are, that's well, just mopping up all the blood. We'll put you over. Yeah. Um, so Bill Kerwin, who played Tom in this had come up with Lewis, as we said, he also helped Lewis develop many of the gore techniques for blood feast. Uh And he actually worked as what we would now call like a special, a special effects technician on this film, but that wasn't a credited role. Nobody, nobody had ever done that on a movie before. So, uh, he didn't, he, he, he doesn't like show up in the credits for this. Uh, the town of SoundCloud all showed up for shooting, as we said. Um, kind of all the residents of the town are, are in the film, and and there's a couple of scenes where I just think, like a, like the people a couple rows back are just kind of like peering over everybody's shoulders and and are very much just like not super into what's happening. You know, <laughs> some of the some of the older residents. Um, the film was edited by Robert Sinise, who was uh, the editor from Blood Feast, and he would go on to become Lewis's regular editor. He was also the father of actor Gary Sinise. I I knew it. I, I, I saw that name. I was like, that's an odd name <laughs> to be in film. Well, that's crazy. Yeah, Gary crazy. Sinise, I think, was like six when they made this movie. So, Nepo Baby or no? <laughs> He did. He did cut like real stuff too, but he okay. he came up with Herschel Gordon Lewis. Okay. I was gonna say I, I think I think the reason that Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, well let's 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 finish out his his career and then we'll talk about. Okay. It. okay. Um, uh, Lewis himself would score the film, and uh, I, he I know he did. I saw he did the songs. Yeah. He wrote and performed the title song, which leans on a lot of the kind of image imagery of the Lost Cause fallacy, like. It opens with a verse about Robert E. Lee surrendering with dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next verse is about Stonewall Jackson's noble death, which was accident, actually an accidental shooting when his squadron ran up on another Confederate squadron in the night and they both thought each other were Union spies and just started firing into yeah. each other's <laughs> troops. Died a friendly fire. Um, aftermath. Uh, so... Even though Blood Feast had kind of slid under the radar of the NP, uh, the NPAA, uh, after the success of Blood Feast, they were on the lookout for Lewis and Friedman. So they forced him to make extensive edits to the film before they allowed it to be released in theaters. 
for this reason, Friedman claims it was harder to sell and drive in movie theaters, kind of like the word was out that the MPAA has like their sights set on this movie. Um, and so Lewis and Friedman have both spoken of the film being a financial success, but I, I can't find any like reported box office for it. So mm-hmm. I, it kind of makes me feel like maybe it wasn't as successful as Blood Feast financially. Yeah. Um, but Lewis has always claimed this is like the favorite film of his that he's that he's ever made. Oh, interesting. Uh, it wasn't really deemed worthy of criticism at the time. You know, Pauline Kael wasn't wasn't writing anything about this one. Oh, I would have loved to have seen it. I would have loved <laughs> to have seen it. Uh, but it has become a, a cult classic. Uh, it's kind of probably the most widely seen of any of his movies, um, mm. probably more so than Blood Feast, simply because it has a more traditional story structure. Uh, so a lot of people kind of consider it, even though Blood Feast was like the first splatter film, like this was yeah. the first proper splatter film and uh, has earned Lewis the label of the Godfather of Gore. Yeah. One of the Godfathers uh, of Gore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 2000 Maniacs is also considered the first exploitation film, which is the mm-hmm. genre that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, it's a subgenre that would spawn successful films for everywhere from Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Deliverance. To Moonrunners, which was the movie that would be adapted into the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. So to, it all. Yeah. White Lightning. Like, like Burt Reynolds kind of got his like career in mm-hmm. exploitation movies early on. I think more. I think he tried to legitimize it more in the end. But like, I think of things like White Lightning and Gator. I think of even Smoking the Bandit to an extent. Mm-hmm. It feels like a more mainstream version of a exploitation film. Um, deliverance. Um, there's one I like. I don't know if it's like exploitation exactly, but set in the South. Uh, and that's making County, Macon County line. Um, the sequel return to Macon County. Also good. The sequel stars Don Johnson and, uh, Nick Nolte is what it is. Look at Macon County line. It's, it's the, uh, Max Bear Jr. Of Beverly Hillbillies fame wrote and produced the first one. And it was this massive hit. It was made for like $200,000 and it made like $10 million at the box office or something in 1974. Huh. Um, but I like both of them. And uh, we're checking out. I'm sorry. It made $30 million worldwide on a $225,000 budget. Wow. Macon County Line. And then Return to Macon County uh, is the sequel a few years later. It has no ties to the first one whatsoever except the term Macon County Line. Hmm. Anyway. Well, the the film that that Lewis would shoot kind of on the back end of 2000 Maniacs was uh, written and starring the guy, the the band leader from 2000 Maniacs, uh, Charles, uh, Charles Glore. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. about a, a country singer, a, a, an aspiring country singer who's caught up in his family's moonshine business. So. So, yeah, oh. that became like a. Yeah became like an off branch of the the exploitation film but what you know what was important with exploitation and and the directions that kind of burt reynolds took it and then you know texas chainsaw massacre kind of being the peak of exploitation horror it was just this idea of like the facade has dropped the the southern southern hospitality the prim and proper gone with the wind that's that's gone it's it's the the way that the south is depicted in film has been kind of forever changed yeah, I mean, it, it, this is where the stereotypes of of hillbillies, rednecks, um, like uneducated. I think this kind of period is where that exploitation kind of sh- like that's where that comes from is mm-hmm. the thing. 
Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah. So there's something I was going to come back to about Lewis. Uh, we'll talk about we'll talk about that later. Um, so what works? Um, I think what works is uh, I think the kills work. I'll say that I think the kills yeah. kills do work uh, for what the budget they have. Um, I think the again it, it's it's judging it on like a on a curve on a curve i think with this it's like i i do enjoy the aesthetic of it because of its roughness is the thing mm-hmm. i don't know if i say it's shot incredibly well <laughs> it's not a great print i'm, I'm sure great, you you saw the great print the same print I have, that, I have, uh, yeah, that i have i have, um, I have no, I, I have a Blu-ray, baby. I think it's a good. Yeah, yeah, Blu-ray. mine's a mine's a Blu-ray. Oh yeah, yeah. so yeah, but the Tubi one probably is not that good if I had to guess. <laughs> um, but it's actually not bad. It's not a terrible print. Um, There's some real like a real start, and it'll just be like ripped. It'll get better as it goes, yeah. but you can tell yeah. somebody like changed it really roughly. Um, yeah, like every time a new reel starts, it gets bad for for a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting again. I like the look of it for for the t- the period at least. There's again, there's a charm to it. Um, I think the again, I think the twist ending is what really kind of elevates this movie for me because mm-hmm. I think that's where you get all the kind of meaning behind the movie in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it's kind of a just it ends on an interesting question. You talk about this idea of the Twilight Zone type stuff, is that I think that's a very interesting twist at the end where it's like you're walking out of the air like, oh wait, what just happened type thing. <laughs> yeah it's like you know these people are are, these people are doomed to repeat this i can't you know can you ever can you learn anything can you move on if the only time you're kind of reincarnated is is on this centennial and that's all that you do is kill people to get even you know yeah is is there any hope to to ever move on yeah there's 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 no making amends it's just like we have to continue the fight Mm -hmm. that's the whole idea continue the fight all right well let's get let's get into uh to what doesn't work i'll let you start this one um i mean i don't i i as as you kind of pointed out i read a couple of kind of modern reviews that are like man he was he was really cooking with something here kind of politically and and it feels like he kind of wheeled himself back a little bit by being like oh it was like break off union soldiers that like murdered this whole town um it, it does feel like he kind of backpedaled just a touch and i, it's a bit, I it's a bit, oh they kind of have an excuse you know yeah 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 they have a right to be mad it's like eh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. not what the rest of the movie feels like that's not what, yeah it, it's not really in line with what it feels like you're saying with with everything else yeah um yeah i mean you know i think we could go into a lot that doesn't work here i think uh you know i <laughs> The the setting, like I said, I think being able to shoot kind of out in the town is mm-hmm. is huge. I think it really helps the film. Anytime they are inside, it's it's not lit very well, and it's not just yeah. like the set deck is or is not yeah. is like non-existent on this one. The little like hotel room they're in that's just like a white cell yeah. um, is 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 pretty rough. Um, yes, but but on the plus side, most of it is kind of outside and. Um, and like we said, I think a lot of I think most of the effort in this film went into the gore, which is incredibly well done yeah. for the period. Yeah, I love watching the inside because you can just see all the different shadows from all the lights because no one really knows how to like light. It's just <laughs> like you have like you have just like lights. Every, like, I'm seeing like just multiple sh- Like Yeah, he has like three shadows on the wall right now from like lights, basically, because <laughs> um, they don't really know how to light it. Just shine a light straight ahead and see what happens. 
Um, and yeah, so you can tell it's like they, they just found a room and maybe put furniture in there or it's what the furniture was actually in the room is the thing. It's it's rough to get started in a way just to kind of set the whole world up is the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the, the first kill doesn't happen to like 28 minutes in the movie. Yeah. And it's a sh- and it's a short movie. And you almost like want to like get to it a little bit faster. Yeah. Is, and, you know, I think thing. I think that's this. This is like it's it's you know it's setting the blueprint so a lot of the kind of slashers you see now will like open with a kill and then it's like here's a kill and now we're gonna set the world up um yeah and you know i think movies like this are what kind of help people identify like oh we gotta start people off like you gotta let them know it's a horror movie from the get-go and then and then you can take a little time to to establish everything yeah that's 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 all I have. Again, I, I I applaud it for kind of setting the the template for this kind yeah. of grindhouse exploitation stuff that takes about ten years to really peak mm-hmm. is the thing. Um, but I, I'll say this too: uh, with the South again, you're kind of talking about Gone with the Wind, even and Birth of a Nation. I this is why I kind of always stand by with 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 movies or stories set in the South is that. There is kind of a want for it because if you're not from the South, it's a new world that you're experiencing. If you're from the South, it's showcasing a world, your world that you rarely see on screen. Does that make sense? So it's mm. like, that's why I feel like there's always some sort of popularity with that is that it kind of, it, it's for an outsider, it's interesting and for insider, it's interesting because it's their, it's the, it's their, it's a form of their life in some way, mm-hmm. or a representation of the goodness or darkness of their life is the thing. Yeah, and and you know, like we were some of those kind of quotes from historians that I was reading earlier is this idea of like in the Reconstruction South in the like Depression era South when you know from Reconstruction on there were a lot of areas that were kind of uh, financially devastated and to be able you could look back and and that's kind of one of the appeals of like the lost cause is you could look back and say like oh well it used to be like this and it doesn't matter that like you yourself were a sharecropper back then like you didn't own a plantation like you you weren't living you weren't living on terra um but but you could still be like oh you know the good old days it's like yeah just gives you something to to lean back on and, and yeah it's it's rose-colored glasses it's it's you know golden yeah. haze whatever um it's, it's the stories you hear from your family about what it was like back in the day is mm-hmm. the it's like no you were dirt farmers like <laughs> you're poor um yeah so it's it it's interesting how pervasive that line of thought came and it and it is really the more i dive into that kind of historical Mm-hmm. side of it and you, to find all these history professors be like yeah like it is like the only time we, in in history we've ever had uh this situation where it's like you guys lost but we're gonna let you tell the story of of what happened and like, just just as their way of making amends of yeah. like all right if, if it's the only way to keep this country together and to stop something from that to, from happening again like okay you can you can tell it that way yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh all right some film facts. Okay. Uh, some of the swamps and flatlands outside of St. Cloud that were used in the film would be purchased soon after shooting wrapped to be part of the Florida project, which eventually became Walt Disney world. Wow. Well, that just blew my mind. <laughs> You're telling me 
it's quicksand. There's quicksand under there. There's somewhere. Quicksand. That that where the girl gets her thumb chopped off. That that there's a tree from that scene. Yeah, it that, could be. That's in like Magic Kingdom right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. It's built on blood. Look at that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, so Hers- Herschel Gordon Lewis in this film in particular was a huge inspiration to uh, young filmmaker John Waters, yeah. who named his film Multiple Maniacs after this one. The band 10,000 Maniacs was, off- was also named after this film. Mm-hmm. And a remake of the film was released in 2001 entitled 2001 Maniacs, uh, written and directed by Tim Sullivan, produced by Eli Roth and starring Robert England as the mayor. Uh, Sullivan would also make the less well-received 2001 Maniacs Field of Screams in 2010 with Rob Zombie regular Bill Mosley stepping in to replace Robert England. Yeah. Lewis would uh, Lewis would continue making several films a year, juggling splatter films with exploitation moonshiner films and nudies until the early 70s when he retired from filmmaking and returned to advertising. He continued on to a well-respected career in advertising, publishing over 20 books on the subject. Oh, wow. He also published a book on collectible plates, which was a passion of his. He returned to filmmaking in 2002 to make Blood Feast 2, All You Can Eat, which featured a cameo by John Waters. And he directed one more horror film in 2009 before passing away in 2016 at the age of 90. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you look at like the just the the output he makes in kind of just a decade mm-hmm. is the thing. Like, like I'm looking at 67 alone to coming three years after this. He made. One, two, three, four, five movies. One, a one that the sixth one that was never complete and one that was his film stage play. So seven things he worked on in 1967. I mean, I, I, when I bought this box set and it's got probably a dozen movies in it, I yeah. was like, Oh, I just got like his entire filmography. Yeah. And then I just started watching it and I was like, no, this is like just his kind of like gore related, like horror movies. This is that's, it's not, a, it's, there's no way we'd put everything he ever made yeah. into one box. Yeah, I guess is Living Venus on there? No, no, it yeah. starts it starts with Blood Feast. Okay. And then it and then it had it'll have like each Blu-ray will have like the major horror film and then like whatever he shot like on the same sets. So they have Blood Feast uh. and Scum of the Earth and then they have 2000 Maniacs and the Moonshine Madness. Um Moonshine so kinda, Mountain. Moonshine, Moonshine Mountain. Mountain. Yeah. yeah. So they kind of pair it up like that. Interesting. All right, well let's let's hand out some awards. I think we've already established the Beatrice Strait Award Vincent for the Santo. actor with limited scenes that kills it. Vincent Santo and his his candy. He never yeah. gets any candy. I never get any candy. The hundred year old kid. What, what, <laughs> he just what, wants some candy. What do you want, you Yankees? <laughs> <laughs> oh shucks. Oh, he's great. That kid's great. Uh, the Annie Potts X Factor Award for the supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. It might be Talcus Blank as the mayor hmm. for me. What do you what do you go? I, I back that. I back yeah. that. I think I, I think he has to carry the most like. Yeah, because the two guys that are the, the the two guys that are the the centennial officiants or whatever, they're not doing a very good job hiding no. how sinister they are. And he, he no. has to be the one to be like, it's OK, everybody. You, you guys, please stay. You're our guest, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then it's like, I'll send it as far as I can. <laughs> spends entirely too much screen time making that paper airplane to then promptly set it on fire <laughs> and stop on 
and then the Gene Hackman MVP award for the person who carries the movie. I mean, it has to be Herschel Gordon Lewis, yes. right? Like, I feel yeah. like it just it has to be based off of the idea, based off the execution, for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> um, he f- and I, you got you got to give him credit for exploiting a niche that he saw was there. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's uh, that advertising mind. And he was continuing. I just love that. Like once he figured out that this was a really lucrative genre, he was like, Oh, I'm not going to stop making nudies. I'm going to keep also, making those. I'm also going to make these. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I'm going I'm, I'm to just make some, I, I know I'm doing it now. I'll just keep doing it. I'm turning out money at this point. Cause this is also kind of the, um, the Roger Corman model in a way, which Corman's mm-hmm. at this point has been going on for 10 years. So that's that's what I was going to say before when we were talking about Gary Sinise's father. I was like, I think part of the reason why he is not as remembered as uh, Roger Corman is like he didn't launch. He wasn't a launch pad for others like Roger Corman was a part. Part of the reason that Roger Corman's legacy. I mean, the only (laughs) literally that we've never covered a Roger Corman movie on this podcast. We've just talked about so many people who came up. Yeah, under covered, roger corman <laughs> we covered a remake of of corman's movie on the patreon mm, with little mm-hmm. horrors but yeah we've never covered one of his movies um and yet we talk about him constantly because there's yeah. so many directors and filmmakers who started on his films yeah it would be it would be like having a to go with a sports analogy here it's like having a a hall of fame coach that ever won a championship hmm. but had the coaching tree of like Nick Saban and Bill Belichick or whatever, like always, like always different people, basically um, that won championships that got bigger, that eclipsed the the popularity of the person that taught them in a way. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis is like, um, <laughs> oh, God, what's his name now? Um, Jack McKinney. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Wayne Time. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a lot of people might not know his name, but if you talk to a coach, if you don't talk to another coach, they're gonna be like, "Oh yeah, yeah." Jack McKinney is actually a great like comparison. Change, change, change the way we play basketball forever. But either, either Jack McKinney or or uh, uh, Jason Siegel's character, where it's like not the first, not the last, kind of in between, and does do a little bit of good, but is not remembered as much as the other two, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. Yeah. Paul Westhead. Yeah. All right. Final questions. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pitch a remake of this one because they've okay. already done it. They've already done it once, and I don't think we need to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can leave I, this one firmly I, I, planted I, I, yeah, in the in the time in the period pa- in that the, it was in. The past. Yeah. I was like, I mean, do you just go like Walton Goggins and go to a <laughs> bunch of like Southerners? Like, is, is Dan McBride the mayor? Like, like what? It like. No, I mean, I think I think the the modern equivalent of this is is something like Get Out or or, or um, Lovecraft Country. You know, I, I don't you can't you can't remake this without it being more about race. But um, yeah, but in, in the period, it was the big thing was to yeah. just expose the kind of double sided nature of, of Southern hospitality. Um, L- like if this was a modern thing, it was done with that. it's like we talked about um get out in the making of get out in alabama mm-hmm. and how they're talking about how they're, like their confederate flags everywhere and trump uh uh signs everywhere and for them that was a very very different way of living uh for mm-hmm. coming from la or, or england with with Kaluuya perspective uh or well, new york or wherever well, that's the one that um 
Kevin Smith made Red, Red State. S- Red Red State. Yeah, I like Red State. I, not people me people do. I was yeah, actually you, you like Tusk. I like Tusk too. I'm just saying. I, I was I was, I was, like, <laughs> I was like, what? Why are you throwing me under the bus in this? In I'm this just instance? saying. You're like, I like Red State. I'm like, yeah, but yeah. We, yeah, um, it's okay. I mean, I here's yeah. I won't, I won't go into my rant about Kevin Smith because I actually like he's some. Everyone's like, oh, he's falling off. So I was like, guys, I know I'm getting with him. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not yeah. gonna complain. I, I know I'm getting with him. Like, mm-hmm. Red State is probably a three star film, maybe three and a half. But like, I was impressed with him pivoting in his career to something like that is the thing. Um, and he actually has a really good cast in Red State, which is why when you look at that cast, it's really good. Mm. Um. Um, I haven't I haven't seen Yoga Hosers. I can't comment. That's the one. I can't <laughs> uh, okay, so outside of so we're we're talking about social horror this month. Outside of social horror, uh, we've already covered a couple of these. But what what genres does this fit in outside of social horror? Stuck in a small town, weirdly enough. Yeah, in in, in a way. Brigadoon uh, movies. Brigadoon movies. Um, um, are they they are they there for just twenty four hours? Is it a twenty? Uh, it's not. It's not one day. I mean, I I can only think of like one night that they spend there. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Um, I would say, um, well, exploitation, 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 southern film as as well. I mean, it, it's it's technically a ghost movie. Mm-hmm. Is the thing. Um. Yeah. Also, in a way, I mean, this is kind of a stuck in a small town, like. like Stuck in a small town is offshoot of this, but road trip movie because they're all kind of coming into this place. Um, but I think really stuck in a small town, southern exploitation film, um, ghost story. Those are all there, and the movie remind me a little bit of, or good, especially the ending and everything. Mm-hmm. Nothing but nothing but trouble. <laughs> From Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> did we just talk about nothing but trouble? <laughs> we did. We talk about at, at Disney. Were we talking about Disney or what? I, I think we talked about it on the podcast. Did we talk about the show? I probably we probably did. You guys tell us. I, I'm the, I guess the only one holding up the flag for nothing but trouble <laughs> in, in, in 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 my in, in the podcast world right now. I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah nothing but trouble. <laughs> okay, so how does this fit in with social horror? Well, I talked about how a lot of these movies have to kind of comment on the time in a way in order to kind of have an effect. And and I think, again, we we talked a little bit about the civil rights movement at this period of time and the kind of the rise of 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 Confederate flags going out, more Confederate monuments and everything. So you, so sixty four, it's a year after uh, Martin Luther King's "I Have a Dream" speech. Mm-hmm. Um, 64 is also the civil rights act the voting rights act is, is the thing mm-hmm. um, so you're in a period of protest unrest uh, where people are fighting for for rights and another group is kind of trying to suppress those rights in some way way um, so yeah there that's kind of all there uh, in a way this feels kind of ahead of its time with how it's how it's like you're talking, it's it's not fully going into it, but it's referencing it is the thing mm-hmm. of these characters living in the past and trying to put the past onto the present mm-hmm. is the thing. Um, and maybe we're reading too much into that. I mean, that wasn't Lewis's. I think Lewis was going with going with it a little bit, maybe not as much as we're putting into it. Um, but it definitely has that quality of like trying to comment on an issue that's happening. 
this is not say race, but it's about just the lost cause and suppression uh, or oppression. Um, yeah, it's this this facade that yeah people have been hiding under for a hundred years now at this point, and him saying no that that there's violence under that facade yeah, there's yeah, hatred yeah. under that facade yeah yeah and uh i think that's a very interesting just way to, to tackle it again mm-hmm. talking it's again looking at say get out or stepford wives or or rosemary's baby it, it, there there are kind of similarities between how they tackle t- taking the idea of like oh the idea of gender, the idea of race, the idea of hospitality, uh, and turning it in a certain way. It's like, mm-hmm. again, talking about this idea of like a high concept. We talk, these kind of movies have more of a high concept than character-driven pieces. And I think that's very much here in this movie. Yeah. Anyone add on that? No, I don't think so. I think, I think we, we hit on it. And I think, you know, it was it was an experiment to see uh, to see if this if this truly fit and and I think it does I mean I think it has it I think it has purpose in it you know I don't I don't think especially given that like nobody had really done this up to this point I, no. I don't think you would say like I'm gonna make a movie about violent Confederates and yeah. and not you know have some intention behind it so yeah. Um, so yeah with a little bit of with a little bit of historical context I think we've 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 set it very firmly in, in its intention so i, I wonder go. i wonder who else has talked about this movie on podcast i gotta be real like let's see. i just want to see there's probably yeah, i don't know i found some i found a couple of interesting articles of kind of like film historians you know talking about as, as what we kind of everything that we just said but um yeah there, there's some out there. there there's a good bit out there i won't say we're the first but it, it is i think with what we do it's unique for us to be covering it. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Cause we're not really just a straight horror podcast. We're not even fully a cult podcast. We just did get out last week for God's sake. So we're <laughs> like, it's, it's a, it's a pretty, uh, yin and yang here with, with mainstream, uh, popularity versus 1960s splatter film. It's very unique. That's the thing about the show. Everyone, we go every which way we try to cover everything and we mm-hmm. hope we discover something in the process or discover appreciation for something in the process of something you already love. But yeah, that's it on 2000 Maniacs. Next week, David is joining me to discuss Night of the Living Dead. That's next week. Uh, David's super excited. He's doing a lot of research. Going through so many documentaries and books and commentaries. So be excited for that. Thomas and I on our Patreon at some point this month. We're talking about Bones and Tales from the Hood. Yeah. <laughs> I've never bones. seen I never seen Bones, but I do really love Tales from the Hood. So that's gonna be on. Patreon. I just saw somebody randomly I follow on Letterbox had like just watched Bones for the first time this week. So I was like, all right, maybe it's like coming back this year. Yeah, maybe. I mean, again, I think it's discussed in um, Horror Noir, which we we uh, we had Xavier on several years ago to talk about that. But I think Bones is discussed in that documentary at at, at length. Specifically, Ernest Dickerson's movie. So, mm-hmm. stay tuned for all that on the Patreon. Night Living Dead next week. All good stuff. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at sanationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments. And if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so as soon as you can so you can stay updated on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to rise reviewing your preferred podcast platform. It's a it's a centennial tradition. You got you got to do it. I mean, we're we're coming up on an interesting centennial tradition for us. We're it's, we're we're nearing three hundred. 
We're nearing oh, wow. 300 episodes. So are we going to cover 300? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, sorry. Sorry, people out there. Uh, anyway, uh, don't forget to like, follow us on Facebook. Uh, X, for my nose, Twitter. There we go. Instagram, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.